Hello everyone, welcome to Econofact Chats. I'm Michael Klein, Executive Editor of Econofact, a nonpartisan web-based publication of the Fletcher School at Tufts University. At Econofact, we bring key facts and incisive analysis to the national debate on economic and social policies, publishing work from leading economists across the country. You can learn more about us and see our work at www.econofact.org. Well, now it's official. The National Bureau of Economic Research, the arbiters of business cycles, declared on June 8th that the recession began in February. This will not come as a surprise. But perhaps more surprisingly, there was a decrease in the reported unemployment rate for May, even though the level is still above anything we've seen since the Great Depression. This has fueled a debate. Is it time to cut back government support for the economy? Or would any moves to fiscal consolidation now or in the coming months be premature? To address these and other questions, I'm very pleased to be speaking with Maurice Obstfeld of UC Berkeley. Maury is widely re recognized as one of the world's leading experts in international economics. He has served as a member of President Obama's Council of Economic Advisors, and from 2015 to 2018, he served as Chief Economist at the International Monetary Fund. Maury, welcome to Econofact Chats. It's great to be here, Michael. It's wonderful to have you on. Maury, at the end of January 2020, most people expected the economy to continue on its path of slower, but still somewhat steady growth. Then the bottom fell out. Has there ever been anything that matches the speed and depth of the decline in GDP that we saw over the past few months? Not in the post-war period and not in the United States. One does think of the Great Depression. Uh, one thinks of the case of Greece during the Euro crisis, but those were uh, driven by demand side shocks. And what we've seen in the US and in the world recently has been a big supply side shock as people have uh, isolated. So um, there are a lot of implications of this, obviously. And, and you and I um, published an Econofact memo about the fiscal implications of it. What's been happening to the government's budget deficit? Well, it's exploded. Um, in 2019, the U.S. deficit was 4.6% of GDP, and in 2020, it's forecast by the Congressional Budget Office to be uh, almost 18% of GDP. So Have that's a huge like that? change. Have we ever seen numbers uh, like that, 18% for the not U.S.? In, not, in, not in recent memory, no. <laughs> not ever. Yeah. And... This, actually, the 4.6% was kind of high too, right? Given that the economy wasn't in a recession at the end of 2019. Well, the uh, administration had pushed for and uh, succeeded in getting a uh, tax cut uh, in a situation where um, the economy was actually doing doing quite well. It was a pro-cyclical fiscal expansion. So that led to a, uh, a large uh, deficit that, uh, that uh, was already uh, pushing public debt upward. And so you mentioned debt. 
Can you just briefly explain for our listeners the um, link between the budget deficit and the government's debt? Yeah, well, when, when the government uh, has to spend uh, more than it takes in in taxes, including what it has to uh, pay to service the interest on its existing debt, uh, it needs to borrow in the markets, and it does so by issuing more debt. So uh, this accumulation uh, of uh, deficits drives the public debt upward. And you mentioned um, having to borrow in the market. So the interest rate then is important as a determinant of the size of the debt and the ability to manage it as well, right? Absolutely. So it's a little bit like somebody who has credit card debt. Their ability to handle it depends on both what they their income will be, but also what interest rate they'll have to pay on the balances they carry forward from previous um, bills. Interest rates are really low now, aren't they? Uh, they are very low. Uh, the Fed had started to uh, raise them gingerly at the end of 2015 after the last uh, um, uh, financial crisis. But now they have been slashed uh, effectively to zero at the short end and longer term rates are low also. And, and Jerome Powell has said that he's going to keep them very low for the, um, the foreseeable future, right? Yeah, he uh, gave a press conference a couple of days ago where he uh, promised no uh, interest rate increases until the end of 2022 at the earliest. So does that ease a burden on servicing the government debt somewhat? Well, absolutely. If, um, if uh, the... the uh, Federal government can borrow at super low interest rates, and you know at the moment, the, the even the rate on the thirty-year uh, uh, treasury uh, is uh, below one point five percent. Then that makes it much easier to sustain a larger public debt. But going back to the analogy of somebody with credit card debt, it also depends on what her income stream is like in the future and. The analogy, the analogous thing here is the economy's GDP growth rate, right? Oh, absolutely. And that's why when you take out a mortgage, um, the lender will want to know, uh, you know, what your what your income is. Uh, they want to look at your pay stubs. They want to look at your um, bank balances and all of that information uh, to assess your ability to pay. So it's not just the rate of interest; it's your ability to generate income to meet those interest payments. And so that's sort of looking to the future. And there's a saying in economics that I know you know, if you're going to forecast, forecast often. But uh, nonetheless, what are people thinking about the potential growth rate of uh, GDP for America over the next few years? Well, there's also the Yogi Berra um, remark that, that prediction is difficult, especially about the future. <laughs> At the moment, it's it's particularly difficult to, to forecast because we we are in a uh, sort of unprecedented type of recession. It's likely that the uh, recovery will be will be slow. There's a lot of uncertainty about whether there'll be a second wave of, of COVID, and uh, there's huge uncertainty about what will happen to uh, inflation. And of course, if you want to look at nominal GDP, you know the amount of dollars of GDP generated each year, 
it's the, the product of, of, of real GDP, the amount of real goods and services the economy produces, and the price of those goods and services. So in terms of both of those components, there's a lot of uncertainty. I mean, some people feel that in, in, in with the highest unemployment rate since the Great Recession, there will be deflation. Other people forecast that with the Fed expanding its balance sheet to unprecedented levels, uh, and with uh, the expansion of government debt, there will be there will be inflation. So we really don't know what's what's going to happen. Um, you know, if uh, uh, inflation returns to the Fed's two percent target uh, within a couple of years, um, if uh, real GDP returns to its long-term uh, growth rate, which is something like uh, 1.6, 1.7, 1.8% per year, then we'll have um, nominal GDP growth of at least 3.5%. And that's way above the forecast interest rates. So that would put us in a better situation with respect to the debt coming down over time. Right. I mean, economists tend to look at the debt GDP ratio. Uh, because again, going back to that mortgage analogy, uh, you know, the more income there is, uh, the easier it is to uh, raise the resources to uh, to pay the debt. So, um, if we have this denominator in debt over GDP rising rapidly over time, that could offset some of the interest costs of the debt, and that would make it easier to uh, bring the debt to GDP ratio down. Uh, as time passes, you know, even without big rises in taxes or cuts to government spending. And you pointed out that um, the times when we've seen these big increases in government debt relative to GDP have been after national emergencies or things like war. Can you talk a little bit about in the wake of World War II, what was the debt to GDP ratio like and what happened to it over the next 10 or 15 years? Yeah, well, there, there are two major exceptions to, to um, the uh, 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 regularity you just cited about um, uh, wars driving sharp increases in the GDP to uh, uh, the GDP uh, uh, debt over GDP, and you know one of those was the Reagan uh, era tax cuts, and the other is the uh, the global financial crisis, but. Um, you know, with neither of those, the debt reached the ratio we saw at the end of World War II, which is 106% of GDP. Um, now we are clearly headed there again. Uh, CBO forecast for debt at the end of this year is 101% uh, uh, of GDP, and it will surely rise higher. The forecast in December was like 80% or something, right? Yeah, it was 79%. So yeah. that's been a huge change. Right. And that's partially, you know, the government, the, the projected deficits, but that's also partially the projected fall in, in GDP uh, this, this year for the U.S., which is likely to be in the neighborhood of 6%. So both the numerator is getting bigger and the denominator is getting smaller in the debt to GDP ratio. Correct. So... What happened after World War II? Because we had 106% of GDP, but then we didn't have that into the um, 60s, right? Or even you know through the 50s. How was it brought down? Uh, well, the the you know the the 
fall in the debt-GDP ratio between 1946 and 1956 is truly remarkable. It fell to about half its uh, level, uh, and that was the result of um, a couple of things. First of all, um, you know, robust growth in the wake of the uh, of the uh, the war. Uh, you know, the U.S. Uh, uh, was doing quite well. Um, had a lot of capital accumulation, output grew. Uh, uh, there was also some some inflation, though not excessive inflation, and interest rates were low. Uh, that was partially the result of uh, financial regulations, and you know, in the early part of that period, an explicit agreement between the Fed and the Treasury, which was later um, abolished, to keep government borrowing rates low. Uh, so that was that was a remarkable development, and then the debt uh, continued to fall relative to GDP through uh, the mid 1970s, uh, and uh, by that point it stood at a little bit more than 20% of GDP, which is hard to uh, imagine or remember, but that is indeed where we were. It's a little bit like thinking that we were wearing bell-bottom jeans in 1979 as well, and it's hard to imagine that was something that we did right. too. I mean, you know, another factor that I should mention, and um, this is related to, um, you know, the very recent performance of the debt up until this crisis, is that, you know, the federal government um, uh, was not running uh, the big sort of primary deficits. The, the primary deficit is the non-interest portion of the deficit uh, that we we've come to uh, live with in more in more recent years. So you had you know, basically, um, you know, debt reduction going on all cylinders. And that hasn't been the case more recently. Right. As you mentioned, the, um, the Tax Cut and Jobs Act increased the primary deficit um, just a few years ago. So we came into the crisis with kind of a high primary deficit uh, relative to what we've seen in the past. Um, yes. So how worried should we be? I mean, there are a lot of things to worry about now. Obviously, the COVID-19 economy cratering over the longer high, uh, horizon, climate change, a lot of social issues around race. Um, where should we place the high government debt to GDP ratio in that list? Should it be at the top of the list? Does it even make the list? What are your views on that? Well, I think for the moment, it doesn't make the list. Uh, the government has to do everything it can to support the economy, uh, because to not do so would be um, very much penny wise and pound foolish. If you uh, short circuit recovery uh, at this point by, by uh, uh, stinginess on the fiscal front, you will reduce the denominator in the debt GDP ratio uh, uh, much more than, uh, than uh, uh, would be prudent. And of course that brings with it uh, a, lot of, a lot of pain and suffering. Uh, so, the government at this point should be going going all out, and that will pay off dividends in the future. Um, you know, just for an example, um, state and local governments are experiencing duress as their tax bases collapse and as their spending needs rise. And uh, to avoid a large pro-cyclical fiscal contraction, uh, Congress should provide more support to states and localities. So. Uh, that's not something to worry about at the moment. Um, you know, after 
recovery is firmly established, um, we have to recognize that there could be some risks from higher debt to GDP ratios. But nonetheless, as long as the Fed can keep interest rates relatively low, uh, especially compared to nominal GDP growth, we should be able to adjust that debt GDP ratio downward without sharp fiscal measures. So those are, you know, to me, and I think to many others, reasonable, very reasonable policy prescriptions. Maury, you've had um, policy experience at the very highest levels. Like I said in the introduction, you were in the Council of Economic Advisors. You were the chief economist at the IMF. Um, what did you see when you worked in the policy world that informs your views of how today's challenges may be addressed? Do politicians listen to economists? Well, in the policy world, economics and politics are never um, that far apart. And uh, it's clear that, 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 that to some degree, policy decisions will be driven by political imperatives rather than by some uh, sort of dispassionate notion of efficiency. But I think what differentiates, uh, you know, good policymakers from bad is not the intrusion of politics, but the willingness to um, uh, view the political outcomes through the lens of, of um, rigorous and, and well-founded economic analysis and well-founded facts, rather than uh, a desire to uh, make the world conform to uh, uh, one's preconceived ideas or preconceived notions. So, um, you know, policymakers have to be open to facts, to data, to fact-based fact analysis. Like what we have in the counterfact, right? Exactly. Yeah. And in fact, if, you know, the world won't conform to what the way you want it to be necessarily, that's sort of, I guess, one of the lessons of economics, that there are these underlying forces that you really can't buck in the long run. Exactly. Um, you know, budget constraints are budget constraints, and uh, your resources are your resources, and you have to work within those constraints. So, Maury, well, thank you very much for this very interesting and very timely conversation. I really appreciate you participating in the contact chats and also the memos that you've contributed to our site. Thanks, Michael. It's always a pleasure to talk with you and to uh, write for Econofact. Well, it's great to have you both speaking with us today and your memos being posted on our site. Thanks very much. Okay, be safe. Take care. You too. You too. Thanks for listening. This has been Econofact Chats. To learn more about Econofact, and see the work on our site, you can log in to www.econofact.org. Econofact is a publication of the Fletcher School at Tufts University. Have a good day.